Hey guys, Montel here. Thanks so much for joining us for this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. I'm so excited to talk to the guests that we have today because they're really going to be talking about an issue that's near and dear to my heart. And that is really PTSD among our troops. And I know a lot of you who don't know and don't follow, I know um, maybe you don't know that I've been working on multiple initiatives for PTSD for now uh, almost 20 years. Um, the most recent one that I'm so excited about is a protocol that's called the RTM protocol, which I'm gonna hope make sure uh, our, our guests today know about before they leave. But it's a protocol that is now one of only two protocols in the world that has now been listed unequivocally, peer reviewed, studied, been printed. It's now evidentiary medicine and has now proven to be 90% plus efficacious in relieving all symptoms of PTSD without any form of pharmaceutical or any medication whatsoever. And so I'm really excited about the work that we've been doing and reaching out to and talking to everybody from you know, the Disabled American Veterans Association to the Fisher House Foundation to you know, members of Congress and Senate, trying to see if we can move this forward because now we finally have a treatment protocol that's going to literally, I think, save the lives of you know, and depending on what you read and what stats you listen to, we're losing anywhere from, anywhere from 22 to 31 veterans a day who are taking their own lives because of the ravages of the symptoms that they have been suffering from, from PTSD to opioid addiction to, you know, just pain and, and over, overdosing from some of the medications that we have them on to treat the symptoms that they have. And, you know, our guest today is the founder and CEO and the co-founder of Hellman Valley Growers Company and the founder of the Battle Brothers Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering veterans through community-based personal development, economic upward mobility, and progressive medical treatments to better their lives and the lives of their families. The Battle Brothers Foundation recently received an IRB approved to launch an observational study on the use of cannabis to help combat PTSD veterans. Mr. Brian Buckley, Welcome to Let's Be Blunt today, and thanks so much for being on our show. We also have with us the CEO and co-founder of Platinum Vape and the host of the and host of the podcast, PV Unfiltered, Mr. George Sadler. Thanks so much, sir, guys, for joining us today on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about this, this pro program that you have and, and the foundation. Let's talk about Battle Brothers first. Uh, when did you find it, found it, and how long has it been up and running? Sure. So we founded it in 2016. That's when we really started noticing what was going on with our veterans in terms of opiate and suicide epidemic that we're facing. So we went at it with a three-tier approach of a personal, medical, and economic. Personal being like a, you got a military member ready to transition out. They get partnered up with a veteran who has successfully transitioned. And it's like a big brother, big sister network. On the medical side, we worked on VA disability claims, so we wanted to ensure that the veteran was getting a disability rating that they and their family deserved, along with if a veteran was suffering with opiate, alcohol, or PTS, or all the above, uh, to put them into a treatment centers to help them just take a knee, recalibrate, and get out uh, back into the world and do some great things. And the third part was the economic side of helping that veteran have a job and having them have that same uh, self of purpose like they did while they served in the military and hopefully avoid them from making a mistake that they can't come back from. And it was towards the end of 2016 when one of our other co-founders of Helmet Valley Growers Company and another Marine Raider with me, Andy Myers, was talking about how great cannabis has been for him, how much has changed his life and how it's helping him transition into a warrior to a gardener. 
And we really thought that was pretty impactful. And there's been some great advocacy groups out there, but we wanted to push it a little bit further. And we had an opportunity to meet with members of Congress. And I said, what do we need to do in order to get medical cannabis into the VA medical system? And they said, you need to get data and get American doctors to back it up. And we were able to do so partnering with a firm called Niamedic out of Israel, along with uh, doctors out of UC Irvine. And that's where our medical cannabis uh, research uh, came from. And you, 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 you both have background in the military, both you and George? No. No. George, how did you meet Brian and how did you get involved? Well, kind of a funny story because my son and I that started this 11 years ago, um, we, through our delivery service, learned that there was a big issue with PTSD. Um, and we found ourselves doing a lot of deliveries to veterans, especially veterans that had just um, gotten out. And, uh, and that's when we realized that they're, how cannabis was really, truly working for the veterans, especially on the PTSD so long story, we go along, we're continuing to, uh, to help veterans in every possible way. Um, a year and a half ago, Brian comes into our office out of nowhere, um, looking for some support to get a brand started. And uh, we sat down and literally within probably 45 minutes, we, we automatically knew that this was the direction we were going to go and super happy because uh, what it's doing now is is, uh, is what we've been trying to uh, be a part of this whole time. And these guys have just taken it to a whole next level. And I mean, you do know that, I mean, I, I, I visited Israel back in 2011 and back that far ago, the Israeli military had already been using and allowing soldiers to use cannabis back then through a program that literally some of the funding came from some of the funded the U.S. research funding back then that was looking into cannabinoids, looking into cannabis. Um, so it's not anything that's been new. It's just the fact that finally, I think the doors are opening enough to make people stop and recognize, you know, what has been anecdotal now for over 20 years or more is finally starting to get met by some research. And I think it's so interesting about your, the fact that you were able to get an IRB approved is the fact that for the first time now, they are allowing the use of cannabis that has not been grown at the University of Mississippi. So the veterans are being able to go out and utilize cannabis in California. I guess this IRB is for 60 patients that you're going to enroll over the next year. And those patients can individually go and purchase their own cannabis from authorized dispensaries in California. And then that cannabis will be what is, is going to be used, but not every one of them will be using the same type of cannabis. That's correct. Uh, it is real exciting. We <clears throat> looked at some of the previous researches and some of the shortfalls and you nailed it. It is uh, a lot of them are tied into the NIDA program or National Institute of Drug Abuse ran out of the University of Mississippi. And there was a lot of issues when they're looking at some of the mold issues. And I've even heard stories. They don't even know if that cannabis would pass California regulation testing. So we really wanted to push the dial here and go after a private IRB. And there was some uh, education that had to take place there with the IRB itself worked on it for about a year with them and got them into a comfortable place where they were happy to say, okay, let's do an observational. The patients will be in control. They can go out and purchase their cannabis. And from there, we'll just observe what is, uh, the pros and cons of what is happening with them and learn a lot from this first study. Why don't you back up a little bit there, Brian, give us a little bit of your history in, in the service. There you go. <laughs> sure. Uh, so I, Grew up in an area called Doylestown, Pennsylvania. We had at the time a, a nationally recognized high school football program. And during my junior year, I was getting recruited by the Naval Academy. 
And my father was real excited about that. And I honestly, at that moment in my time, I had no desire to do anything in the military. So went to the University of Massachusetts, was playing football there. And then obviously the events of 9-11 took place. Uh, I remember we went down to the practice uh, complex. We were kind of talking through, ready to go out to a quick, uh, what they call whiz practice. We just throw our helmets on and get our fit. Uh, one of the captains stood up, says, I don't think we should practice today. And the coach is like, that's fine. Go home, call your loved ones. We'll see what happens this weekend, but I doubt we're playing. And I was back at the apartment with four other football players. And as weird as it sounds, I just went to the bathroom and looked at myself in the mirror and said, it's time for me to go earn my citizenship. So it was at that moment I knew I was going to get into that fight somehow, some way. Finished out the season, went home over Christmas break and informed my parents of my intentions. I wanted to get into the military and decided to transfer to uh, Villanova University and got into the NROTC program there. I uh, did two years at Villanova, graduated, uh, received my commission into the United States Marine Corps. Uh, from there, I went down to Quantico, did my initial schooling, was selected to go into the infantry, so took orders to 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines. We deployed to Fallujah, Iraq. When I came back, um, I had a pretty good deployment. Uh, my bosses said, hey, uh, why don't we take you and try you out for Marine Recon? So I went, tried out, made uh, Marine reconnaissance. My re reward was they sent me back to Iraq six months later. When I came back from that deployment, we just started our uh, Marine Special Operations Program, or now known as Marine Raiders. Uh, they asked me to go take selection. So about 300 of us went to selection. I think about 30 of us made it. And from there on out, I was a team commander uh, with uh, Marine Raiders and did deployments into Africa, Southeast Asia, as well as Afghanistan. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't, you know, <clears throat> they would see you and think that, uh, well, here's a guy who's made it back and transitioned easily. But why don't you talk a little bit about how difficult the transition is back from, you know, combat zones to back to civilian life to trying to figure out what your future is all about? Well, I, th sorry, I, I think also understanding Brian's real humble about this, um, what his positions were and what uh, what he has uh, has been through is what I think um, is the same, if not more than your average and definitely more than your average uh, person coming out of the military being shot um, and whatnot. So I, I think I think it's really uh, it's great to understand that he as well is one of those people um, coming out of this and trying to understand um, the direction of where everybody is going once they do get out and, um, you know, having PTSD and, and dealing with that and the cannabis side of it. I think that's, he's not going to talk too much about that, but I will. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, you know, for me, I, I think we do a really good job in the military where we compartmentalize a lot of things. So, you know, while you're in combat, it's always focused on the mission. And even when you're taking casualties, um, and as George mentioned, I was wounded myself. You don't really focus internally. If you do, as you know, Montel, being in the military yourself, that's just going to result in more casualties. And you got to keep focus outboard. And, you know, you kind of go through everything. Everything's fast and high, high speed. And we would come back. I mean, I might have enough time to do my laundry. Then it seems like another mission would pop up and off we go. But for me, it was when it really started to slow down when I transitioned to civilian life. And, um, you know, for me, I couldn't watch the news for a couple of years. Uh, I was just embarrassed. I wasn't out there anymore when I see news reports of what was going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and then, you know, for me, my pushback stress, I really have no sympathy for what we had to do to the enemy. Um, these were terrible people who wanted to do terrible things. And my mission was to uh, overwhelm them with lethality on the battlefield. And we did a really good job of that. 
but unfortunately where we have to fight, you know, I tell people it's not like in the, um, you know, civil war days or world war one days or stuff where there's a battlefield and you fight there. We're fighting in people's backyards and the enemy at times would use uh, women and children as uh, human shields. And we would always expose ourselves to greater danger to make sure we got it right. And we took care of the, the people who need to be taken care of, but ultimately the civilians get wrapped up into it. And, you know, I have had to deal with a lot of pain. I still have shrapnel throughout my body. Um, but then when I started having kids, I, th- I think some of the things started kind of uh, coming to surface with me. My anxiety and my sleeping was really being impacted. And it was at the time where, uh, like I said, again, one of my other teammates, uh, Andy Myers, was just talking about how positive cannabis has been for him. And he's like, I'm getting a great night of sleep and I'm cultivating now. And the agrotherapy has really been beneficial for me. I just had to try it out. And when I used my uh, first time I used cannabis to help me go to sleep, it was amazing. I got a full night of sleep and I woke up feeling refreshed and it felt like, like my soul was kind of returning to my body. And obviously I became a huge advocate and huge believer and just been putting a very you know blessed position by the graces of George and his son, Cody, for giving us the opportunity to take this forward and help out our American heroes. And I mean, I guess now, you know, you've noticed and you've seen, again, I, we have been talking about this. Well, first off, we've been talking about PTSD uh, since we finally recognized it as a malady. And I'm not talking about through this last administration, I'm talking about before that, when we started to realize that a lot of our Vietnam veterans were still suffering from PTSD. We used to call it shell shock, but now we change it and probably we're now discussing it appropriately. And then, you know, for the last 20 years of warfare, you know, we have started to finally recognize that, you know, there are those invisible wounds that are just as powerful, or in some cases more powerful than the physical wounds. And yet, um, doesn't it strike you a little bit crazy that, you know, I, I've said it often, if, if we, we anecdotally came up with only two people that this helped, why not let them do that if it helped them, especially since we've had no other treatment protocols? Does it not shock you a little bit about how much resistance you have been met with when it comes to trying to help your fellow the brothers in arms to, you know, have access to efficacious medication? It's been a really interesting journey. I, I would say really in 2016, when we started this, I can even remember talking to some colonels and generals and they just kind of gave me the stink eye. Like you're doing what with like with cannabis or like, yeah, all right, good luck with that. And as I started seeing more of the benefits and getting more um, into the whole tire community, I just, you know, you kind of nailed it where I'm saying these men and women raised their right hand and signed a blank check payable with their lives. Why are we not exhausting every means at our, uh, that we have at, uh, as possibilities to see what can best help them and allow them to live the American dream they fought so hard to defend? And it has been really incredible, I think, with just the paradigm shift that we're seeing in a nation with more states coming on with either adult use or medical or both. And you're starting to see some hearts and minds being one. And that's ultimately what we want to do. And those same colonel and generals who were kind of looking at me a little different in 2016, they were the first ones to congratulate me when we got awarded the IRB. And they know we're doing it the right way and doing the right thing for, for, the, for some great people. And, and I'm glad that at least you changed some of the hearts and minds of some of those who were pushbacks. But I am still shocked, and I think, George, you can address this if you want, it being a, a owner of a, a, a business that works in this space. I mean, you take a look at what happened in our last election, and I'm not going to talk politically about who got elected or who didn't, uh, but let's take a look at what won in the last election, and that was really cannabis all over America. Cannabis won. 
five different states implemented some form of cannabis legislation. Yet now that that's been done, we're also looking back now at the fact that there's been now so much pushback. Look at South Dakota. South Dakota passed a, you know, adult use referendum. And now you got the state legislation trying to overturn the will of the people. You know, the state of New Jersey passed adult use. And yet, you know, most of the local, you know, uh, politicians are trying their damnedest to make it so administratively impossible for it to begin. And as much as we have recognition for truth, you know, we have this president who, uh, president-elect who, sorry, a new administration who, if no one wants to remember and no one's talking about it, you'll hear it a lot in the press, but throughout the last six months of that entire campaign, both he and the, you know, vice president, uh, uh, who was the candidate, were running around talking about how quickly they were going to step into the cannabis fray in America and change some of the legislation and at least try to figure out how to change the scheduling and how to change and what they were terming decriminalize. And, you know, they're supposed to make their first moves known in the first 100 days. Well, have we not passed 100 days? Yes, we have. And well, we're close. We're at 90-something. And uh, we still haven't heard from them about what they're going to do. And we still have a president who was elected who six months ago had the nerve to say that he still thought that cannabis was a gateway drug. And, you know, their entire, you know, attitude towards decriminalization, I think, is criminal because, truthfully, we don't need to decriminalize cannabis. We need to completely take it out of the scheduling system and talk about it the way it should be talked about. That, I don't want to hear that that I'm still breaking the law, but I'm going to let you do it. That's what decriminalization means. And that's, to me, bullshit. I mean, the truth of the matter is what we should be talking about is providing good, sound, efficacious medication when we know it works. I, I think mean, that's I think that's where safe access takes over the whole thing. And, you know, we're, we are talking about military and we're talking about PTSD, but let's talk just a, a little bit about the other side of this uh, with all the other disorders, if you want to call it that, with, um, with termini- terminally ill cancer. Um, there, there's so many other things that cannabis is winning at. And the problem that we have, it always comes around safe access. And why don't we have that? Why don't we have uh, the right to manufacture in one location and ship to other, you know, we're in four states and you have to manu- manufacture in, in all those states. Um, we still don't have safe access. As much yeah, as think better when you say we have to manufacture, just so that people are listening and tuned in, what, he's trying to, what George is trying to explain to you is that, you know, though we have cannabis business right now in 36 plus states in this country, Correct. every individual state has to manufacture the cannabis that it sells within that state. So there are no national brands, if you will, because, right. you know, the national brand is literally is fragmented into 37 different versions. And though you may find an efficacious medication in California under one brand name, you can find that same brand name maybe in another state, but it's not being um, manufactured using the same type of cannabis, using the same cultivars. So therefore, you're using something entirely different, which may may not be as efficacious. And if you get caught supposedly crossing state lines, that is federal violation of law. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I just want to make sure I clear that up for people at home when you said uh, you have to make it in different states. But uh, you, you could have the same product boxed in the same packaging in two separate states, but that is not the same product. Correct. And, you know, if you look at it on a different level, uh, you know, being consistent, you know, having a brand 
providing uh, safe access. You think of McDonald's or Subway or any anywhere else where all their foods are manufactured in typically one to two locations and then shipped to each and and every location um, that they have. They 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 maintain that consistency. And the other side of it for us is, you know, one facility as the facility that we are in here, you're looking at two and a half to three million dollars just to get started on the, you know, on that side of it. So each location that we go to, we have to set up a whole other manufacturing licensing. And, um, and once again, the whole, the whole purpose of this, you know, in the beginning, I think we, we always looked for, man, if we could just get it down a couple levels on the schedule, that'd be great. And I think you hit it home. We're at this point now where it just needs to go away and everybody needs to be provided safe access. And, and I think all of that will follow once that does happen. Well, when you say you think now, so, so from the two of you, I mean, first off, I got to tell you, Brian, I think the fact that you were able to get an IRB and Amazing. it's an observational IRB, which means that, you know, let's just tell the truth. Come on. The FDA is going to require 10 more of those before they make a move. And then it won't just be observational. Then they're going to require a double blinded study. And then they're going to buy a required double blinded study using the exact same product. And then if they say the exact same product in California, that means every single guy is going to have to go and buy the exact same brand. And then they're going to claim, oh, it wasn't the same product because it came from two different harvests. So therefore it's not the same cultivar. So, I mean, it's really literally... I think it's just a bullcrap way of being able to appease us in some ways rather than satisfy us. You get appeased by saying, yes, here's your study, but it doesn't satisfy the requirements for us to be able to go ahead and change the schedule. Put your crystal balls on for a second. What do you think the next year, the next two years looks like in our space? And especially there's two separate questions here. One is the space when it comes to safe access for cannabis period. But then the other one is safe access for cannabis when it comes to just our veterans. Yeah. You know, one thing that I don't know has received a lot of attention is what happened in the UN back in December of 2020, where they actually removed uh, cannabis from the 1971 treaty or descheduled it. And then you actually had the World Health Organization come out and say there is medical benefit with cannabis. And if you look at how the DEA would operate and why we keep this thing at a schedule one, they basically point to the UN and the World Health Organization saying they're saying this. So why are we even having this conversation? Well, now that's taken from them. Yeah, but you know, I tell you something, the DEA never really gave a damn about what the World Health Organization and the UN did anyway. Let's let's get this out here straight. You know, the part of the reason for its criminalization has been since 1937, and it was criminalized because of the work of one Harry Anslinger, uh, DuPont, and uh, you know um, William Randolph Hearst, you know, funding a lot of the anxiety. And and Anslinger was a proponent of cannabis when he was a prohibitionist against alcohol. But when he almost lost his job because alcohol was legalized, he had to find something to do <laughs> to make sure that he can continue his racist rants. And he did so for the next 40 years, making sure that cannabis and hemp was outlawed worldwide. I think the biggest thing that's helped uh, in some ways, though it's helped and it's hurt, has been the new farm bill that allowed for interstate commerce for hemp. But that helped a little because we were able to then you know, uh, for some really asinine reason, consider only one cannabinoid a good cannabinoid and allow that to be sold interstate. But then, 
you know, still hold all the other kind of animals hostage being sold interstate. Um, I think it's, it's, it's just preposterous that we live at a time right now when the same people who are pushing back against cannabis are the same people who funded cannabis. Most people in this country don't know that every single year, you know, our federal government funds a program through the University of Mississippi that does research and actually provides cannabis to patients across the country, although there are only four of them still alive. Um, and we had a budget item in our federal budget every year for the last 50 years plus that allowed this to happen. Now we're talking out of the side of our face saying, well, we wonder if it really works. Yeah, no, it's, it, that's incredible history you brought up too. And I think it's really important for the audience to hear that because it, it really has had a legacy of just people trying to, you know, bastardize cannabis and paint it out to be this evil thing with all entire reefer madness days and trying to get over that uh, stigmatization that they put out there. Um, but, you know, what I thought was interesting with the DEA and this movement with the World Health Organization is they always put out a press release and they use that. Well, they haven't put out a press release yet, so they kind of got caught blinded. And I work with this great group called the Veterans Action Council. And one of the members, Michael Krawitz, was one. Uh, he was an Air Force veteran, actually went over to Vienna and was working with them on this. And it was a 27 to 25 to one vote that they won, that they got this. It was pretty much like he said, it was like the NATO countries were for it. The Warsaw Pact countries were against it, but at the last minute, they got Ukraine to abstain and they got a victory, which kind of blindsided everyone. And now I think you're going to start seeing as more research is coming online, like I'm really excited what the University of Pennsylvania is doing. They want to go out and work with private farms. And you got more people kind of going into the space of the research where there's going to be a bunch of us coming up here in the next year or two, proving the benefits. And eventually you, you can't stay around it. And listen, politicians like their jobs. And if people are coming out and they're proving this and everyone wants it, they're going to have to go to that route. And, you know, I look at it this way with what we have in times of, um, of war, you know, you got to say people in the military, they fight the battles. The politicians make the peace. Right now, we're putting this on our back, us as military veterans. We're going to carry this thing as far as we can go. And we're going to do about two or three of these studies. And it's going to get to a point where I got to start doing FDA double blind. And that's when I'm ready to go front of Congress, raise my right hand saying, you guys told me to go get that and American doctors. Here they are. Let's move forward. I've taken this fight as far as I can take it. Now it's time for you to make the peace. And I'm talking about making the peace so that our American heroes can live the life of peace that they deserve. Well, you know, I mean, it's very interesting when you talk about warfare, I mean, you know, um, in every battle since, I guess, uh, honestly, the Civil War, and really, it was post the Civil War, you know, the, the uh, Mexican-American War, you know, uh, we started putting these things, these little red H's on tops of buildings. And the H was, you know, taking the patients off the battlefield. And World War One, World War Two, you know, you didn't strike a vehicle that was riding around with an H on the top of it. And, you know, it's time that the U.S. government takes our patients off the battlefield. You know, you can fight all the war you want, but let's just make sure that the patients get the treatment that they need. And so very well said with you from your perspective, I think, you know, but we're also going to see, I, I wish that there were, this would be done because altruistically and humanitarianly wise, you know, we recognize the benefits, but I think what's going to happen is it's just going to be straight up competitive, you know, consumerism and, 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 commercialism because you know right now we know that china is growing millions of acres of hemp right now getting ready to flood the entire world with cbd or 
non-THC cannabinoid products. Uh, I know of a, a grow in Colombia that's a million acre grow. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Argentina, that's going to be close to a half a million acre grow. Um, you know, all over, you know, uh, Chile, um, uh, Peru. So the rest of the world, uh, Spain, you know, India, India is now getting India, which has always been had, you know, legal cannabis in the sense that as long as you didn't sell it, uh, it was legal. Uh, so India is getting into the space. And pretty soon, the, you know, like we have been left behind with so many other things, we're about yep. to get out again. And right now, it is legal to import CBD products from outside of the United States. How crazy is that? How, how absolutely? Well, you know, what a lot of people didn't understand is that it's been legal to import hemp products yeah. even throughout the entire prohibition period. We were getting hemp protein, hemp clothing, hemp soaps, hemp, hemp shampoos, and things uh, coming through Canada here in the United States before we ever passed the hemp bill. All the hemp hemp oil coming from China. Correct. I, I mean, and we're having huge issues with that because there's there's no uh, quality control on Correct. that, and they're sending. They're sending hemp oil over in in uh, in barrels that were containing diesel fuel, um, you know, but yet we're sitting under 120 panel uh, testing requirements in California, and pretty much the same going through all the other states. But yet we can import a 55 gallon uh, drum of hemp oil from China that was previously holding diesel fuel, and none of that is being tested. And right. this is like the this is the mainstream, uh, if you want to call it a gateway, because a lot of people they associate hemp. As soon as you say hemp, people think marijuana, and it's and it's not. It's not even close. But now, I mean, I was I was walking through the mall the other day, and all the 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 uh, the CBD uh, facial creams and everything that's going on there. It, it, why are we not regulating that enough that it's coming from the U.S. and it's holding the standards that cannabis is having i mean hemp is it's consumed way beyond anything in cannabis and it's being used on the cbd side um and it's just where's the regulation for that but there's not enough people you know i've I've been i've been a big proponent of you know this industry living up to its responsibility and that is to be the educators in our society and unfortunately, you know, most of the businesses in this country are too busy worried about B2B and not so worried about B2C. And B2C is B to consumer. The second we educate the consumer, the consumer goes to the doctor and tells the doctor what they heard. If you take a look at it right now, we could stop this podcast, go cut on the television, and I guarantee you that there'll be an add-on within five minutes of some pharmaceutical that's being promoted to the public so that the public can go back to their doctor and tell the doctor, I heard about this one, then the doctor will then yep. prescribe it. So there all of a sudden it becomes mainstream. That's how we, you know, are in a capitalistic society make money. Yet this is the one product that is a nutraceutical that you can't market. You can't advertise. You can't talk about. We can't even really extol the virtues of cannabis, whether it be hemp-based or THC based, we can't really even extol those virtues in a marketing way, but we could do way more than we're doing from an educational standpoint. 
You're exactly right. And that's one of the things we really want to get into on our side. As we're going through our research, we want to be very transparent about what we're doing and actually have people go on a journey with a veteran during the 90-day process of them going through the study just to get it open to them and allow them to see, hey, this is what the real deal is and this is what it actually is doing. Forget all the other stuff where all the negativity that we hear about it. Let's look at the benefits of what this can do. And just on on the thing on the medical side, it's going to be I mean, listen, the Israelis have already done it. We know we can, we can prove it, and we are going to prove it. And hopefully, again, if we can get that word out there and they lessen some of the regulations on the marketing side and we can have a better, a better platform, I think it's just going to change the whole entire medical landscape for our country. But I wonder how long that's going to take. I mean, I think I, and I've been involved in, in you know, the commercialization of cannabis for close to 20 years now and honestly been involved with my own brand for now the last 10. And... You know, I just see more foot dragging than I do actual real efforts to move this paradigm forward. It's almost like, let me just appease you enough to keep your mouth shut. And then we like, you know, lemmings just follow behind and keep our mouth shut rather than opening up and talking about, you know, the benefits that we've now had and that are proven. It's no longer anecdotal when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. It's real science. Yet, uh, you know, they're going to force this this whole idea of another yet again another double blind study and another double blind study. I just saw, I heard about some research that came out about a week ago that claimed through one of the initial uh, uh, double blind studies that they didn't see that great of a difference between the placebo group and the uh, the real group, but that group that was supposedly placebo and real were using cannabis or cannabis from uh, University of Mississippi, one. Uh, and two, um, you know, we don't know what the protocol was and who the uh, qualifying recipients of the double blind were to begin with. So, you know, there's a lot more that's going to have to be done. And I think a lot more uh, on the parts of us, the veterans who literally are speaking out. Unfortunately, they're, you know, and for no good reason, a lot of vets are afraid to openly say that they are cannabis users, where we now know that at least the VA has already stipulated that if you happen to be a cannabis user in a state where it is legal medically, you can't lose your VA benefits if you have a recommendation. So what we got to do is start getting more and more vets to go and enroll and get their right. Even though you may be in an adult use state, go on and enroll in a medical program so that we can start to validate the fact that you are a medical patient. I think this is this is a big factor of the scheduling. It, it's almost like that's that's always being held over your head. Go ahead and and do this. You can you can have a store. You can grow. You can this. But as soon as they feel like you might be out of line in some way or another, they can hold that that scheduling over you. And next thing you know, you have the feds at your door. Um, that's why the scheduling needs to go away. Uh, it just it, there's so much pressure from over the top of you that it's not allowing people to do what they need to do and provide the safe access. Yeah, you're right. But then, you know, but, but I fear that if they change it from schedule one to schedule two or schedule three, then it puts it in the arms of the pharmaceutical industry. No, that's why it has to go away. It, but, but, but well, if you mean take it completely out of the schedule. Completely out. Well, but, you know, we're going to find that, that that's not going to be satisfactory to majority of legislators. I, I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. There may be a five-year period where we literally change the schedule 
so that at least it becomes a testable and researchable product. But I don't see legislators allowing for it to go the way of, let's say, a nutraceutical. Um, and part of that is, again, I think you can blame it on our own industry for this because, you know, we live in an industry that has tried their damnedest to continue to do what they were doing in the 60s and the 70s, and that's grow the CBD and grow the other cannabinoids out of the plant and give you the most powerful THC plant that you can have. And now you have so many people who have had really, really, really bad experiences right. with the THC because we've now pushed the numbers up to the plus 27s and 28s and 29s. And you have neophytes who are coming in or people who are Nikki new guys who are coming in using a product that completely puts them in, you know, a commodose uh, way. And, you know, what else is a, is a local municipality to do? but then come down on the head of those who have, you know, tried their best to create the most psychoactive product available to man. So there's a little bit. I don't, of I don't disagree on that at all. So that's where we have to have some pushback with our own community and start really talking about, you know, coming together. This is still, again, one of the things I think that's, that's, that's of our benefit is that we are such a new and I say new only because from the from the standpoint of a new industry in the sense that it's been accepted as an industry, you know, we are no further along than the Wright brothers pushing a wood plane down, wooden plane down a hill. I mean, you know, we still got jet engines that come when it comes to research and all those kinds of things. Um, though, you know, we have an industry that's got dispensaries here and dispensaries there, but never the twain shall meet, never the twain shall talk to each other. Um, you know, when we get beyond this neophyte area, I think that we may see some things start to change. Or I hope we see some things start to change. Talk to me a little bit, Brian, about uh, the foundation and, and the work of the foundation. Let's talk a little bit more about that so people understand what Battle Brothers is, is does and what it offers. Sure. So foundation has been great. Uh, it's been really rewarding for us who've been working with it. Um, again, I'm not going to be a guy who comes out and says, you're a veteran and you're in need. You you probably need cannabis. I just think cannabis needs to be a tool that's in a toolkit. And if it makes sense, they should they should use it. And we wanted to make uh, Battle Brothers more sense to fit the needs of that individual veteran. So say if we just have a veteran who's like, listen, my VA disability claim I think it is nowhere near where it should be. Can you help me out? And we'll take it on. We'll look it over and we'll go and fight for him. And I think one of the most rewarding times I've had is we had a Vietnam veteran. He was a Blue Water Navy. So for some of you back home, Blue Water Navy, there are guys on the big ships in the ocean. And he definitely got hit by some Agent Orange. He has uh, Parkinson's, his back is fused, brain surgery. Let me, let me, let me just jump in for a quick second. I and a gentleman by the name of Admiral Straw, Vice Admiral Straw, have been working for the last 12 years. As a matter of fact, we actually were the ones that were literally, you know, lobbying at Congress and trying and beating people over the heads for 12 years, trying to get them to understand that there was no difference between blue water, brown water, Navy. Come on. We were spraying all those, those chemicals. They were washing off, going back into the rivers. And that, that same water was going through the coolant, you know, systems on board ships that were sitting pierside. So these yep. guys were just as contaminated as those on the ground. But go ahead. Uh, exactly. And, you know, he, he's, he was having a lot of issues. I mean, I was actually kind of carrying him around his house one day and we went forward, said, we got to get this guy squared away. And we understood Blue Water Navy probably was not going to get recognized until 2021. 
So we went a different route and we got him up to 100% PTSD uh, rating and listen, 100% in the VA is 100%. And at that point, he had a a lot of money, hit his bank account and people came in and started refurbishing his house, getting him the wheelchairs he needed and changed his life. And just to see the look on his face to say, I I haven't had people really go forward and care for me like this. You know, you can't put a dollar value on that, how much it meant for us to take care of that American hero. So we've been helping out veterans here with their disabilities. We've had some who have unfortunately have had some suicidal tendencies. So we've taken them, uh, gotten them to the proper treatment. And uh, a lot of them are recovering and coming back and, you know, ready to live that great dream. And obviously winning this IRB or being awarded an IRB uh, really has been a great thing for not just Batterbirds, but also Hellman Valley Growers Company, because with Hellman Valley Growers Company, 100% of our profits we put back into our veteran medical cannabis research initiative. And it really validated the brand and let people here know like, hey, these guys are the real deal and they're doing what they said they're going to do. And we're about to bring on some uh, new people on the Battle Brothers. We got some really great ideas. Just had a really good meeting on Friday. We're going to build into more of a fusion cell and partner up with some other uh, veteran nonprofits and just making a great experience for our, our American heroes. You know, I think one of the things that people don't understand, I, I, I do a show uh, now that's uh, that's called Military Makeover Operation Career, where we literally, I'm sorry, Military Makeover, where we take some veterans who, you know, deserving veterans and uh, guys and we, once they're nominated, we pick select a family and that family, then we literally make their home over from the ground up. You know, everything from gardening uh, to their roofs to, you know, uh, everything inside. Uh, we turn them into smart homes. In fact, we just awarded a family back, the Daniels family, uh, Marine, uh, who spent his uh, uh, time uh, in Iraq um, and literally been home for nine years and still suffering today uh, from the ravages of this PTSD, though, you know, he's tried to move forward. Um, a lot of people don't understand that, you know, just because you're away for a couple of days doesn't make the the issues go away. Why don't you help uh, some of the people who are tuned in today to understand what that's all about when you talk about PTSD? Talk a little bit more about that from your own perspective and from some of the, the vets that you know. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, I always tell people it's like you, you can't get rid of your demons, but you can learn how to fly above them. And for me, you know, PTSD is just part of my life. I, I have it every day. Um, I have what they call hypervigilance. So when I'm just out, I could be out at the playground with my kids where I should just be a dad enjoying watching my kids. Well, I'm constantly scanning rooftops. I'm scanning the ground for IEDs. I'm looking for enemy snipers. I'm actually thinking two or three steps ahead. If my kid climbs on this, what if they do that? And they fall off here, should I be over at that spot? Which is kind of maddening if you think about it. Kids need to be kids. So I really have to work on that with myself. Um, you know, my body, I'm in constant pain. Um, but that's fine. I, I got I got all my parts and limbs and I'm living a great life, so I shouldn't complain. But you just deal with your arthritis and the pain. And, you know, I have shrapnel behind both knees and in my ankles and all that stuff. And Well, sorry, I think that's one thing that I've noticed, you know, through the years is um, we tend to go more towards the person that's in a wheelchair, more towards the person that has a prosthetic leg or an arm or is missing limbs and and, and, and not to downgrade that at all. But the same person walking the, the streets that was there and, and doing the same thing uh, and doesn't have the physical visual side of it, um, they're, they're in the same boat. Um, you know, and, and it, that's something that I, I found probably about four or five years ago 
when we were doing a lot of work with, uh, with veterans and, and, and the cannabis side and, and it was kind of one of those things where I would, I would, I would roll up to somebody's house that, you know, would be in a wheelchair and visually you think, Oh my God, like, like this is horrible. And then I'd be, uh, you know, and he'd be happy. He'd be smiling, you know, but you know, he's dealing with things. Then I would go to somebody's house. That's been sitting in a dark room for two, three months and is a hundred percent physically intact and is having the worst time of his life. And I think I didn't mean to stop you, but I think that's one of the things that we tend to do is we tend to look at the person as if you're walking and talking and everything is, seems to be fine. Oh, he's fine. But the truth of the matter is, is that, 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 you know, it, it comes in so many different packages and PTSD doesn't, it doesn't discriminate. It, it's on it, whether you have legs or not, um, you have it. And, um, and, and I think, you know, where I'm going with that is more of just being aware of everybody, not just certain people. Well, you know, the thing that's very interesting is that again, the, the soldier I was talking about that uh, is a recipient of the military makeover home a week ago, um, literally had very few physical illnesses, but, uh, literally his life has been mired in PTSD, um, almost barely moving forward because, you know, I think, um, and I can't remember the name of the cemetery in Iraq. What is it? The jockey. Yeah. I think that was, that was a, you know, the, the gentleman, uh, uh, Michael Daniels, who was our recipient of our home. Um, literally he and his, you know, his, uh, platoon commander was, uh, Congressman, uh, Seth Moulton, who, um, is the only congressman that's kind of, kind of actually admitted to having PTSD. You know, he and that squad were held down in a battle in a cemetery for three days, four days. And, you know, they lost a lot of members of the squad and, and you know, uh, almost ran out of food, ran out of water. And you're being attacked from underneath the ground because there are tunnels throughout that cemetery. There are crypts throughout that cemetery. Somebody's, you know, so you basically are fighting a battle against an enemy. It's coming about on the ground. It's almost in a place where people are buried, you know, which was, uh, you know, no question. I can understand why this young man's life has been destroyed, you know, in a way. Um, and he lives with those memories every single day, having, having to watch some of his friends actually lose their life in that battle. Um, and, you know, I, I'm just uh, echoing what you say, George, it, it's not necessary to have, you know, a loss of limb to suffer from PTSD. It's just being there in theater. Um, you know, I, I spent some time, uh, you know, in Afghanistan and uh, went there to visit troops. And I can remember, you know, uh, when I was at Kandahar, um, you know, sleeping overnight, um, there, uh, that, that I remember, you know, hearing rockets red glare, you know, probably a half a mile away that, you know, even till today, still there are times when I'll be sleeping and have, you know, a weird little nightmare. Um, and I wasn't even in uniform. I was out of service for, for 20 years at this point in time, but, you know, to know that our veterans live through on a daily basis you know, only a blink away from losing their lives and having to contemplate that all day long and contemplate your own mortality all day long. There is no wonder why some of these guys are still suffering today, 10 years out of theater. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think another point too, Montel is, you know, I tell people, I was like, 
post-traumatic stress isn't just a military issue. It's a human condition. And it can happen to anyone. I mean, you see a horrific car accident or whatever it may be. You could suffer from post-traumatic stress. And one of the things that we know will be a byproduct of our efforts here is, yeah, we want to make it federally legal so veterans can have access to medical cannabis in a VA system. But a byproduct of that will, medical cannabis will be available to every patient in America. And again, we can get away from some of the things that we keep trying and trying and trying again that don't work or have adverse effects to something that is all natural. It could be a one-time thing. I mean, meaning just one thing you need to take, not 15 pills. And it could have a huge uh, impact on your life. And it's great too, because cannabis naturally brings people into a community. And one of the things I see with <laughs> veterans suffering with post-traumatic stress is their isolation. They feel they don't, they're not worthwhile. They, they stay at home. They're staying in the dark. They're taking their painkillers or drinking their drink. They get their payment from the VA every month. We need to get them out, get them with people talking about, because next thing you know, what you saw, someone else saw it too. And this is how they're dealing it. You're not alone in that fight. And that's why I really want to help too, is hopefully we can get some cannabis lounges. Instead of vets going to the VFW and paying 75 cents for a shot, why not have a, a, a VSO kind of cannabis lounge where veterans can go buy a joint and sit there and talk some things over with their friends and not do anything stupid at that point, I think would be really something special. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, George, why don't you tell us a little bit about your company platinum vape before we let that go without going into it? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so platinum vape was, uh, was founded actually by myself and my son, 2011, early 2011. And, uh, my son was finishing college. Um, I was uh, winding down my father's business and uh, he came in and said, Hey, what do you think about growing cannabis? I said, four years of school. And this is what, this is what you're getting out of it. And, um, and knowing my son, uh, which even to today is so dedicated to this. Uh, I said, you know, I'm either going to get on or, or off. And so we jumped in and, and started our first, uh, our first company, which was nature's leaf uh, filed a corporation did everything as legal as we could um, going under the, the medicinal side of it. And we started a six light grow in our garage from there. Um, we couldn't sell it because everybody thought we were police officers. So back in that time, there wasn't a lot of brick and mortar, a lot of delivery services. And uh, so the only way we could do it was to, to uh, start delivery service that I honestly think is the path that was meant for us because at that time, is when we started to see the need of cannabis on the medicinal level. I, I don't think we would have found that um, as soon as we did. Um, and that honestly, that's what changed both of our lives in understanding um, what it's doing for people versus the recreational side. Both are great, but on the medicinal side, that was the path that we, that we found ourselves going. So fast forwarding from 2011 uh, we went from from becoming the largest delivery service in Southern California to then owning four stores. Um, the The stores just weren't really our thing, but when the when the oil extraction started taking place, that was very interesting to us. And um, so we climbed on a plane to China, and uh, that's where everybody went to get their packaging and get the you know everything that they had for for the vaping side and for extraction. Um, we started, uh, we started a small extraction facility. We hired, uh, actual SDSU chemist, uh, through the summertime. And, uh, from there, we, 
we found that we couldn't have the off time with them. So we put an ad out and um, we ended up with uh, the first person was a, had a PhD from Purdue and he was working in Trillium in Indiana. And we actually moved him out. We built out a lab and, uh, and then one of his uh, we hired a second um, chemist that had a PhD from Stanford. And so these two created a process for us on the extraction side. And, um, and that kind of solidified where we were. We, we got out of the store business and went straight into uh, manufacturing. Now keep in mind from day one, when we started, we always were testing all of our products, everything, as far as cultivating, we made sure that no pesticides were being used. I've always had this, this, uh, even in this, I've never been in cannabis in that way, but I've always had this, um, this thing for me that I just don't want 10 years to go by and something is happening and I'm part of that negative side. And um, so my son in the beginning would say, you know, why are we spending so much money on this testing and, um, and, and making, you know, and now it all comes full circle to understand why that testing needs to take place. And I don't feel guilty. Um, anything that, that, uh, that we manufacture or leaves any of our facilities is tested beyond um, the normal regulations and safe access means safe medicine. And that is uh, it's a priority for us. So fast forward to where we are today. Um, we did sell our company to part of our company to a Canadian company, uh, red, white, and bloom. We did that in the ways of being able to fortify uh, the brand throughout the States. And, and to really go that level, you have to be a part of a bigger team. And um, so that's where we're at now along alongside with, with these guys. And then uh, with, with Helm and Valley and, and, um, and uh, battle brothers, this is, it's offering us a lot more free time to kind of focus on those, those things as well. And Brian Helm and Valley, Helm and Valley is your brand, correct? Yes, sir. Right. And, um, that you were saying earlier that hundred percent of the profits go to back to veteran initiatives. Yes, sir. We sent right back to our veteran medical cannabis research. So not only are you getting great product, but your dollars going to go beyond just the product itself is going to help this initiative and help move the dial forward. And hopefully we can solve this one, and make it federally legal. So now when will your study actually launch is, is launched now or you are sure. enrolling patients? Yeah, we're working with Niamedic and uh, we're going to get close. We, we kind of put a, a red line as uh, 1 July, so it could happen before then. Uh, but once we get our, everything set up, we'll start the recruitment process, bring in veterans here from California and go through that study. And uh, we're feeling very good about it. We got a great medical team and having a UC Irvine jump on a, towards the 11th hour and bringing some of the American doctors on board to learn from their Israeli counterparts. I just think it's going to be a, a really special and unique thing. And again, one more time, this is a 90-day study, right? So it's not like a five-year study. It's a 90-day study, right? Yes. Yep. We build it for speed. So we're going to do a 90 days on this observational, um, you know, again, win some hearts and minds with it and get more aggressive with the second study. Gotcha. Anything else that I didn't ask you that you guys want to talk about? You know, one thing I would, I just always want to make a shout out. Um, so obviously, we're called Hellman Valley Growers Company. And when I served with 1st Marine Raider Battalion, we were in the Helmand province in Afghanistan. And when you serve there, you become part of the Helmand Valley Gun Club and you get an HVGC tattoo on you. 
So we really wanted to keep a military niche to it and uh, really kind of share the story of these legends that we lost in the, the Helmand province. You know, history will let us know if we did good there or not. But at the end of the day, these were some great American heroes who, again, raised their right hand, um, you know, signed that blank check, payable with their lives and went forward for us to live the American dream. And we do this to honor them. Absolutely. Well, I can't thank you guys enough for being here. I'm telling you, thank you so much for what you're doing. And, you know, keep me abreast of the study. And I'd love to have you back again once you get some of the results and even bring some of the doctors on with you. Because, you know, I think the more and more just like what we're seeing with the vaccine right now, it's the, you know, finally, again, America starting to recognize that science is real. So uh, maybe we can have some of the doctors come on and talk a little bit about the science and what they have figured out and determined. And uh, we can keep spreading the word. That would be tremendous. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, we'd love to have you on our podcast as well sometime. Well, absolutely. Pick a time, just reach out to me and I'll, I'd love to be on. Okay. Right. Hey, thanks, Montel. For sure. You guys take care of yourself. Stay well, stay safe. Thanks for what you're doing. Ura Marine. You know, I spent 22 years uh, in the service myself. So I go, uh, my service spanned 22 years. So I thank you for all of you've done and thank you for what you're doing today. Thank oh, you. You're, thank you're you. still in it. You're still in it. Thank you. So thank you for continuing to serve. You guys take care. You too. Okay. Thank you. Make sure you tune into the next. Let's be blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments.